Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films by film lovers for film lovers. Each week we pick a film, we watch that film, we review that film, we discuss some of the ideas and themes that film presents. Currently we are in season four, and what we're doing this season is we're going genre by genre, picking five genres, and we're going on a deep dive of those genres from their earliest inceptions all the way through to their modern incarnations. And we are currently in the second of these mini-seasons, I suppose. We're looking at the vampire genre, and we are now four four episodes, I think, into um, the vampires, and we are in the 60s. Now, if you watched last week, we promised this week we'd be talking about a movie called El Vampiro, which is a Mexican vampire film. Unfortunately, the problem with 50s Mexican vampire films is they're quite hard to find, and the two leads we had on finding this movie both fell through, so we ended up unable to source a copy of it. If you have one, we'd love one, and we'd watch it and review it. But in its absence, we have moved on to another film, but more on that later. Before we kick off, we always like to discuss or have a little you know, chat about the other things we've been watching, other things we've been reading or enjoying in the last week or so. So Sam, apart from the as-yet-unnamed movie, what have you been enjoying? A couple of things. Because I've had some time in Hollow the past couple of days, and... Um, I haven't wanted to go outside because it's the some the, the gates of hell have opened for some reason. It's so hot. It's so hot. <laughs> yeah. So I've been I I had a look for um, best films on Netflix, recommended films on Netflix. I was pointed to one called Mudbound, described in in glowing terms, critically well received, and has been nominated for several Oscars. Um, so, and all things pointed to being very good. Just couldn't get on with it. Okay. I don't. I don't know why. I just. I watched the first hour of it and I thought, yeah, life's too short for films you can't get on with. <laughs> so, surprisingly, actually, it sounded like the sort of thing I'd be into. It was a post-Second World War historical thing about uh, racial tension in the US. Um, it looked quite good. There's some good people in it. But, like I said, I just couldn't get on with it. I did like, however, I had just started watching the... TV series from Channel 4, Catch-22, um, which is enjoyably ridiculous. Um, and it's an enjoyably ridiculous film, uh, enjoyably ridiculous book um, in the first place. So uh, um, it seems quite a faithful adaptation of that. So I've enjoyed that. I think Mudbound, maybe maybe I need to be in the right frame of mind for it. And Catch-22, I was quite happy to not be in that frame of mind. From the sublime to ridiculous, I think. Fair enough. How about you, Rob? I've got nothing overly unusual to report this week, um, which is unlike me. I'm basically continuing two things we've previously discussed. So I have mentioned on this show that my wife and I are currently re-watching all of the MCU 
and we've reached the first peak, the first nexus point of that of that series with the first Avengers film or Avengers Assemble, as it was known in the UK. Thank, thankful Uma Thurman Stara from the 90s. So Avengers Assemble, or the Avengers, as everyone else calls it, has been our movie of the week. It's, it needs no real introduction, and almost everyone in the world has seen it. And it's good. It's very good. It's the, re- the reason why the MCU exists as it does is from that movie. Josh Whedon is a master of his craft, and it's all on show there. So I don't really know much more to say about that beyond it's great and people should watch it. Secondly... I mentioned this, I think, literally last last episode. I'm also currently re-watching Veronica Mars, which is a TV show from the early 2000s starring Kristen Bell. I think I was halfway through season one when we spoke last time. I've just polished off season two. Been a, a bit of a mission for me, a bit of a sort of obsession for the last couple of weeks. So we're going to season three now. I've got season three, there was a movie, and then season four, which is just airing in America. So I shall be, hopefully, by the next time we talk, I've wrapped up Veronica Mars' rewatch. And on something new. So, as Rob has mentioned, we hit a number of roadblocks trying to find our film this week because it turns out Mexican vampire films quite difficult to find. So, we have gone instead with a film from 1959 called Curse of the Undead. Was he, this being half human, half what? Appearing out of the nightmare darkness. Evil his face, evil his deeds. Curse of the Undead sees uh, the vampire tradition that's been built over the past few episodes that we've talked about and meet the Wild West movie in the mashup you kind of never knew you needed and it tells a tale of initially a farmer but he it's no spoilers so he dies very very shortly after the beginning of the film and his children and their interactions with um, a guy who turns out to have been um, a member of a thought to be long dead family of Spanish farmers and he is turned into a vampire and it's the interaction between the the daughter in particular that family and Dan Young who's the preacher in the local town and this vampire who goes by the name of Drake Roby. Rob what were your thoughts? I really enjoyed this film I'm just letting on I really enjoyed this movie. I think I was a little nervous going into it, and I was, I was you know, hand on heart a little nervous going to watch El Vampiro as well. We have seen essentially three versions of the same story up until this point. Mm. The three films we've watched have kind of been the same story, so this was a bit of a change. You know, we, we've it's dropped some of the Universal um, or Hammer versions of Dracula vampires and sort of done its own thing and brought back some more of the traditional. I suppose Eastern folklore, Eastern, Eastern Europe folklore around vampire. So he can be in sunlight. He can you know he he's caused not by being bitten. He's caused by the mortal sin of suicide. 
And when the people he bites, he just eats them, and that's it. And it's a very different sort of vampire that we've seen too. I enjoyed that kind of refutation, I suppose, of the existing model of at this point in time of what a vampire movie was. Also, I think we've both gone records as really enjoying Western movies generally, um, and they, the kind of fusion of the two genres of the kind of the the macabre horror of the vampire sort of side of things versus the more kind of in many ways naturalistic western genre was like a, a friction that i really enjoyed and sort of the, the the joining of those two worlds or something that i got on board with what about you sam this for me was a film of two halves because if you'd asked me this sort of 45 minutes into the film i would have i really did not like this film i thought it was really hammy and sort of tv like and I didn't think the acting was very good and Sheriff and in particular Tim, the the brother, were just really, really quite wooden characters. And then it just exploded into life. And I loved the last half an hour of this film. Um, from pretty much mm-hmm. the, the moment that Roby meets Young because there were some brilliant scenes between Rogue and Young, when you really get a sense of how how tortured Roby feels about this. Yes. We never got that sense with the Dracula or Nosferatu figure. It was always, this is, it, it felt like it was a bit of a perk. I mean, who, who would want to be immortal? It's great, hurrah. And with Roby, you really saw that Actually, it's terrible for him. He does not want this at all. He say, when he says the breacher, you think I wanted this. So that that scene, that sort of good and evil, the God and the devil scene in Robius house, in Young's house, I loved. I thought it was brilliant. Mm. And I think from there onwards, I really loved this film. So the beginning, not so much, but then. It just, like I said, it just exploded into life. I loved it. I think, I mean, that, that does open up this interesting sort of, I suppose, side shoot of, of the vampire genre, which is that we, as you say, up until this point, overwhelmingly becoming a vampire is mostly positive. The idea, it's almost that kind of idea that we have in general society of those monsters somehow being superior human and the super sort of the super genre, be it superheroes or super monsters, but they have a, a, a critical weakness. You know, it's Superman and Kryptonite, and it's vampires who have all these advantages, but they have this, you know, the weakness for garlic or cross, whatever. And it's almost seen as this kind of balancing act of here's all the good things and here's all the bad things. Mm. But with this, because it reverts that traditional model of vampirism being a curse put on somebody rather than anything else, it is literally a curse for your own actions by God or nature, whatever. It's all downside. It, it, it actually, it's that sadness and it's that. The pathos that uh, Raby brings of just like, this is his life. He accepts his life, but he knows it's not a good life. He's not pretending that he's somehow better mm. or he's somehow more enlightened. He, he, he's just kind of doing his thing. Yeah, that that sense that you got, you really felt sympathy for Roby because of that towards the end. Mm. I thought that, that was something that was really interesting about this film that at the beginning... As an audience, you were on the side of the daughter and 
you're kind of on the side of the preacher as well. Mm. And Roby's a bit of a bad influence. And then by the end, it becomes it becomes a really sympathetic character. And Dan is really not good by the end. Mm. And he turns. And yes, he uses quote-unquote good Christianity, the forces of God to defeat this this devilish incarnation. But... It, it it's not good at all, and by the end, I felt I felt really sorry for Roby. Yeah, I think I think there's an interesting, an interesting journey both of the characters go on. He's all in black, you know. He's clearly like the man in black figure. The mm. vicar, the priest, is like by a very nature being a priest, is considered a good man. And the scene, the whole story is played out in that you, like the priest is supposedly like he's honest about his intentions. He's honest about what he's talking. About. Whereas Roby says a bit, bit more like he don't really know what he's doing or why he's doing it. There are secrets there, but then the film kind of brings them both together towards the end. They both can meet in this place in the middle, in which the priest is not a bad person, but he's no longer sort of the good person he was at the start of the film. And the same with Roby, he like you know he what he is, but the film like when he dies, it's genuine sadness. But there's also genuine sadness for the priest. You feel like he isn't... It isn't like he's sought violence. It's, he, you feel, almost feel with him like he's just kind of like, this is the uh, the inescapable inertia of this story means leads me here. Hmm. Felt almost like Roby didn't want to be bad and Dan Young didn't want to be good if being good meant what he had to do to Roby. Nobody wanted it to happen as it did. Hmm. It just felt like the inescapable ending of, of the story. Mm, yes. That thing with the colours, I had to think, it, it struck me at the end, this this contrast between black and white. And you're right, he, he is the man in black. Um, but in, well, certainly Western films, it's sort of, I don't see used with such... It felt like the, the symbolism that we had here was sort of striking with Roby sort of skulking in the shadows and Dan Young out in the open in the mm. light. And there was that you don't you don't normally get that in Western films. A man in black is not necessarily a man who hides in the shadows all the time. And that's why I think this is an intentional choice. Mm. Because the film starts with very very typical both horror tropes and west and western as in uh, sort of cowboys and indians rather than western world western tropes it starts in a place of like, i recognize this it's a rancher and his daughter it's you know it's it's the sheriff and a posse and it, like it's it's so much built on those tropes of the world you know mm. and then it takes it into an interesting direction that, that's why i think this is very much an intentional thing i want to talk a little bit around the idea of these kind of Fusing, fusing of two genres because both of the, of the vampire at this point you know we are what, 30 years 40 years into into vampire movies plus obviously the literally goes along with it that's an established genre westerns are clearly an established genre but this kind of managed to fuse both but make them both work it works as a western it employs the tropes good and bad of that final shootout all that kind of stuff but it also somehow marries up the two of the vampire of, of the hero who is on the side of, I suppose, light in terms of, at this point in time, certainly Christianity and faith and the good versus the dark of the vampire, who is somehow corrupted, in this case, by murder and revenge and suicide, was the original corruption of that character. It somehow just kind of works. 
that the, the, the taking these two very disparate, very separate movies and movie genres and kind of fusing them together. Mm. I'm making dishes in the air here, fusing, but no one can see that with me. I, I wonder whether it sounds derogatory if I say they're both quite simple genres. I don't necessarily mean it in a terribly negative way, but they are the mm. only genres that lean quite heavily on stereotypes. And on, well, you talk about like the final shooting up and stock characters and scenes in the saloon, in case the western and the vampire rising out of the coffin in the case of the vampire. Bomb. So these these are both genres which lend themselves to almost lend themselves to parody, I suppose, and that mm. sort of straightforwardness, almost predictability of these genres makes them go quite well together. Yeah, I see what you're I suppose the advantage of having more, not, not simple, but a most iconic in, I suppose the truest form of iconic is it's full of icons, iconful genres, is that you can grab a few bits and sell the genre. So whereas if you're making, I don't know, like a... a intense family kids instant drama there's that it's less iconic in its visuals and its moments and its characters that you can't just dump something else into it mm. whereas because you, literally with this you, you know you sit it in have some ranch hands have a local bar with swinging doors you know have a have a sheriff and a posse just by having those things you're halfway to having a western movie mm. and that's why i think something like a western as a genre has survived and mutated over time so we've got you've gone into things like space westerns and sci-fi westerns and you know, modern neo-noir westerns and things like uh, no country for old men that that kind of the, the 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 archetypes of that genre get to be repeated again and again because they are so archetypical mm. and obviously vampires as we all discover over the next six weeks hopefully has the same sort of thing where you can grab a few bits here and there and make a vampire film and produce all these variations on on a theme by grabbing the key moments so taking those two together and fusing them works really well and i think that's hopefully that is something we see over the next of 50 or 60 years of vampire films and i think that is why these why genres like this are are particularly long-lived or like you said, there are all these these different sorts of western, for example, so mm. space western, etc. And there may, as a result, be all these sorts of different sorts of vampire film. And I like that because because as you said, this is I mean the the first three weeks Nosferatu, Dracula, Return of the Vampire, all essentially the same film. And this one, I mean, although. Although there was a similar scene, there was a scene between Dolores and Roby and you had a pinprick and him focusing on the blood and they thought, okay, I've seen this before, this is like this scene in Nosferatu. Then it didn't go where that scene was going and Mm. I think it, it was pleasing that there were those nods to the genre without necessarily feeling tied to it and I'm interested to see where the genre goes I I agree I, I say it kind of it really worked by fusing those two things together mm. now Sam do you have some recommendations for us do first of these well both of these actually are 
based on actors in this film. First one is uh, the actor playing Preacher Young. Dan Young is Eric Fleming, who was in the original TV western uh, Rawhide, which started in the year this film came out, 1959, and went on for seven years. Um, so, yes, I, I would recommend that as the place to go for westerns on not, not just on film but westerns on the screen in general that Rawhide TV series my second recommendation not really very generic but there's an actor link with Edward Binns who played the sheriff and it's to an Alfred Hitchcock film that we didn't talk about in our mini season on Alfred Hitchcock it's North by Northwest also from 1959, which I have loved for many years and I've watched many, many times. And it's a brilliant film. And if people haven't seen it, then go away and do so. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. So I've got two as well. Um, First, actually, and second one, thematic. So none of you have been to my house, maybe. If you've been to my house, um, and a few of my friends do listen to the show, my house is very often filled with move posters. Almost every room somewhere has got a framed move poster on the wall. Up my stairs, I've got a bunch of framed classic 50s, 60s B-movie posters because I'm a big fan of the genre. And it delights me no end that I actually get to recommend one of the movies from my posters on my hallway today. Um, so Eric Fleming, who plays Preacher Dan Young in Curse of the Undead, appeared the year before as the lead in a science fiction fantasy movie, I suppose, called The Queen of Outer Space, about a spaceship that crash lands on Venus, discovers a matriarchy there that is ruled with an iron fist by a a matriarch, and it takes the team of four good red-blooded American male astronauts to release the women from this uh, celibate matriarchy and show them the love of a good man again it's kind of terrible but kind of brilliant at the same time as a lot of the movies from that era are um so if you like if you like this movie if you like uh, curse the undead and you're willing to kind of go along with that style and that kind of era of movie queen of outer space is it's a lot of fun not i'm not gonna say it's a great film but it is a lot of fun my second recommendation is not a good film <laughs> um i'm gonna be honest everyone it's not a good film, but I'm being I'm being a bit self-serving and self-promotional here. Way, way, way back, probably about a good oh, 10 years ago now, uh, I worked, unsurprisingly, on a Western horror movie. It's about a cursed gunslinger who everyone he shoots comes back to life as a vampire zombie-esque character, and he is then forced to hunt them down for a second time. It stars Wesley Snipes. And it is called Gallo Walkers. The film that you will see if you check it out is nothing like the film I worked on. It went through several different directors, several different producers, several edits. And I worked somewhere in the middle on one of the edits. It's got a star rating of 3.6 out of 10 on IMDb. And I feel that's being quite generous. <laughs> yes. It's not all we know. Gravity and Oscar movies, guys, in the, in the, in the industry. Sometimes, sometimes you make me feel like this. I mean... The guys, the people who I worked with on the movie were great, but it was a film that was half shot and pulled together from different versions. But they released a version eventually. But it was it was an experience. Um, so if you if you enjoy this fusion of genres and you're out for a good laugh, it is a, it is a fun film. Even I couldn't hand a heart and say 
it's a good film. I think I worked in like 2008, 2009, and it came out in 2012. Generally, at that point in my life, I was doing final grades and final editing. So when I worked on a film, it was the very last stage of production. And the film would be out within a couple of months of me finishing it, if not weeks. For a film to finish its grade and it's online and not be out for several years afterwards is very unusual. Mm-hmm. But that's because they went back to editing and they got it all changed. Anyway, more, more stories aside, guys. Gallo Walkers. I, I will. I'm, I'm going to say I'm not going to be checking that one out. I think that's, that, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> so, guys, that's us looking at uh, the 50s. Next week, we are moving into the 60s. And we're going to be looking at a film called Black Sabbath from 1963. So hopefully you guys, hopefully we'll be able to find that. And hopefully you can too. And you can catch us back here in two weeks time talking about Black Sabbath. Until then, you can find both of us on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. You can find just me at Kaiju FM. And just me at Life underscore Academic. And we'll return in two weeks time with Black Sabbath. Thank you.